So today we're going to be looking at the final chapter in the book of Habakkuk. Last week we covered the five woes that oppressed people pronounced on all the tyrant kingdoms of the earth. These five woes were like curses or taunts toward the tyrants for their property theft, their, their, their land theft, their slave labor, the politics of distraction, and their worthless idols. All of these things become their eventual undoing. Last week, we put the atheism of force in the crosshairs. The atheism of force is, is the way that tyrants build a world without God. The tyrant purposely constructs their life so that their power is the only power. Their way is the only way. Their truth is the only truth. So this week, we're going to put the atheism of fear in the crosshairs. The atheism of fear is the natural temptation for oppressed people to give up hope. In giving up hope, they are tempted to accept the world on the tyrant's terms. There are no powers beyond the tyrant's power. There, there are no morals beyond the tyrant's morals. There are no worlds beyond the tyrant's world. That's the atheism of fear. So today we're going to watch as Habakkuk passes from a hopeless world without God, the atheism of fear, into a world where God has the final say. Now, before we dig into the passage, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles, and, and, and I'm going to be giving you a bit of a walking tour of the passage, but I encourage you to, to read the words for yourself uh, afterward, or perhaps as I go along here. So, what makes chapter 3 so interesting? Well, for starters, it's totally unlike the other chapters in the book. It's meant to be a song that God's people sing in their worship services. Now, this is unlike any song you're likely to hear coming out of Bethel or Hillsong. This is a gritty and truly terrifying little ditty. It has the kind of imagery that you're only going to see in your nightmares. As with most songs in the Bible, the song begins with some instructions. We find those instructions in verse 1. So in verse 1, we read Habakkuk's instructions on how to sing it. He wants us to sing this song with our whole chests. And then at the end of the chapter are his instructions to the band. And Habakkuk wants lots of guitars going on in the background because this song, at its heart, is a metal song. So, with that out of the way, here's a little outline of the chapter. So, how to sing, catching a tiger by the tail, nobody owns the divine warrior, and it may still grow darker, still I rise, and then what instruments are needed. So now we're going to walk through each of these sections together. So, let's begin. Habakkuk, in this opening verse, is buttering God up before he asks for what he really wants. He says, God, you are big and powerful and glorious and just, and, and so here's what I want. Would you please do in our day what you did in the olden days? God, we need you to knock heads together. Please bring justice. Please free the slaves like you did in Egypt. Get angry, God. Take our enemies out. But then immediately, Habakkuk has to pull back. 
but don't get too angry and righteous, God. Please remember the sins of my enemies. But, but also, could you maybe stop short of noticing ours? Could you confine your wrath to the borders of their land? I mean, I want you angry, but just not, you know, too angry. Friends, this is called having a tiger by the tail. Now, grabbing a tiger by the tail is a nearly impossible feat. It's something many wish they had the strength and cunning to even do. But what do you do when you're successful? You know, you have a tiger by the tail. Should we be congratulating you or be making funeral arrangements? Most of us find ourselves wishing we could grab a hold of God's holy justice. There are things that are not right and unjust in our world that we want God to take care of immediately. And when it comes to divine justice, if you've only got your eyes pointed at your enemies, it really makes sense to ask God to wipe everyone out. However, once you realize you don't control divine justice, you quickly see how you too could easily get caught up in that storm. You see, No one passes through the mud fight of this life and doesn't get their hands dirty. If you want God to swoop in and clean everything up, your turn will eventually come. And that should give us pause. No sooner does Habakkuk finish his thought than his dream is interrupted by a terrible sight. God is now rushing into the world. A modern exodus miracle is about to take place. In verse 3, God comes flying out of Taman, out of Mount Paran. Wait a second, Taman and Paran, they're not inside Israel. Why is God coming out of the southeast? What, What is he doing there? We built him a perfectly good temple in Jerusalem. The the temple is where he lives. Why isn't God flying out of our temple and heading east toward our enemies? Well, the simple answer is nobody owns the divine warrior. Nobody controls God, not even Israel. And before that thought can fully form in Habakkuk's mind, the divine warrior is crashing through the countryside. He is flattening mountains. God's chariots called salvation rage against the sea itself. The divine warrior is picking fistfights with the rivers. I mean, the rivers. He is hurling lightning and shaking everything with thunder. Proud armies are thrown into chaos. The number of arrows he lets fly, they fill the whole sky. Enemy camps are in flying into total chaos. Tents, tents even seem to be afraid. And the leaders, they are stripped bare and stabbed in the head with their own spears. God's horses trample the sea and whip it into latte foam. And it's total and utter chaos. I mean, this is what you wanted, right, Habakkuk? You you wanted the divine warrior to settle the world's hash, didn't you? Habakkuk sees this picture and immediately falls to pieces. His heart is pounding. His lips are quivering. His bones rot and fall apart. His legs nearly give out from fright. This vision utterly transforms our dear friend Habakkuk. 
Something about the certainty of that day, the the knowledge that the power of God will bring it all to pass, the, the certainty of this future exodus, all of it begins to work on Habakkuk's heart. Something happens. He is transformed. And breathlessly, he tells us he can now wait patiently for the Lord for the day that God rescues Israel from her enemies. Now, the question is, how patient is Habakkuk prepared to be? Well, we're about to find out. Habakkuk's mind now returns to the world in front of him. The day of God's justice is not today. It will be in the future. And so he returns to a bleak world where the enemies of Israel are still large and in charge. The thieves are about to take everything. They're going to steal the wealth of the people. They're going to steal the land. They're going to steal the bodies of the people of Israel and make them into their slaves. All the goods, all the good things that God has provided them through the land are about to be taken. The grapes, well, they might as well not grow. The olive trees may as well not produce oil. The animals may as well not have new babies. It's it's all going to disappear. But something is different about Habakkuk right now. He's come face to face with a truth that goes deeper than the power of an empire. Something deeper than his own fear. He is transformed. He ends this section with one of the most incredible statements in the whole Bible. And it could be loosely translated like this. Even if I starve to death, I will rejoice in the Lord, my Savior. Friends, this is the miracle of God's people. Here is our secret weapon against the atheism of fear. If the power of the wicked tyrant nation is absolute, if their power is the only power, if their world is the only world, if their system is the only system, and if we are all alone in that world, one question remains, why haven't they won yet? I mean, what's taking them so long? They hold all the cards. Why haven't they smashed the resistance decades ago? The answer must be that there is really something else going on in this world. There is a force, and we know who it is. It is Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Greater than armies, bombs, bribery, and torture, it is he who thwarts the efforts of the wicked and gives to the righteous another kind of power. Not of this world, the New Testament says to enable them to resist and to endure. Friends, our hope in this world is not found in our killer response to the problem of evil. It's not in our ability to win every battle. It's, it's not even in the truth that every little bit helps. The Christian hope is this, that one, the divine warrior belongs to no one. Two, we know who is really in charge And he is just and he is good. The divine warrior works for no one but himself. He alone frustrates the plans of the proud. 
He alone lifts up the weak. If this were not true, the strong and the wicked would have won long ago. Friends, this probably doesn't feel like a very satisfying end to a book that started off so well. When Habakkuk started us off, it really felt like we were finally going to get some answers around here. And to be honest, when I took the assignment to preach from chapters 2 and 3 of this book, I was hoping to bring you more. But I hit a wall in this assignment as I sat at my kitchen table this week. I I wanted something more concrete to offer my church. So I went looking. And once again, I went searching for the voices of oppressed people. I wanted to listen to people that felt the sting of the rigged game more profoundly than I do. And I asked myself, did they find anything more solid than what Habakkuk seems to have to offer? I hoped they had a tastier morsel to offer my church. So here's what I found. I obviously found anger and outrage. I I heard the violent words of revolution. I saw the things you expected to see. I, I heard the logic of the empire repeated in the mouths of the oppressed. The game is rigged, they say. You have to fight fire with fire, they say. And I suppose that's something, but to be honest, it it sure feels like more of the same. But also, strangely, this week, as people around the world, as people observed the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death, I heard something else. And, spoiler alert, it's identical to what Habakkuk has been saying this whole time. There is a deep and inexpressible joy that the tyrant cannot touch. Yes, there is anger. Yes, there is rage. Yes, these emotions are there, and they are part of the story. But they are only part of the truth. They are part of chapter one. There is a strange confidence that people possess when they know that evil has not and will not win the day. Instead of only seeing an empire, they see a warrior that no one owns a warrior that frustrates the armies of the tyrants and fights on the side of the oppressed. They cling to this hope, knowing that they themselves may starve to death before they see it all come to pass. But they cling to it nonetheless. And it is this hope that, as Habakkuk would say, makes their feet like that of a deer and enables them to tread on the highest heights. This week, I heard preachers and activists, our literal brothers in Christ, our literal sisters in Christ, and they all insisted that there is something else going on in this world. They insisted that Yahweh, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is so much greater than racism, is so much greater than a policeman's knee on someone's neck. It is so much greater than anything a tyrant can throw at people. I heard Habakkuk's words of hope in hymns. I heard it in songs. I heard it in poems. And I heard it in sermons. So friends, this hope that Habakkuk found thousands of years ago is alive and well to this day. And today, I hope this kind of hope will begin to animate our church. I want us to sing this hope in our worship. I want us to read this hope when we open the scriptures together. I want us to contend with one another as we wait for this hope to come. And 
I want us to join the divine warrior in the hope that he offers our neighbors, our city, our country, and our world. This hope is alive. This hope is alive. This hope is alive right now, right here, right in the middle of all of this. Get your guitars out and let's sing this song together. So Habakkuk starts this book out with a complaint. The righteous are suffering, justice is being thwarted, and God is absent. And Habakkuk brings this complaint to God. What are you going to do about it? And throughout the book, we get to listen in on this conversation between Habakkuk and God as Habakkuk demands answers, seeks explanations for the suffering of his people, and then just hears God give these unsatisfactory replies until chapter three. In chapter three, we read this poem where Habakkuk's posture toward God is changed completely. Habakkuk speaks of this encounter with God, where the glory, the terror, and the greatness of God is revealed. God looks and the earth trembles, the mountains shatter, the rivers split the earth. God steps forward and the earth and all its enemies are trampled. God comes like a whirlwind and scatters his own warriors. And Habakkuk is finally convinced. He's finally satisfied. And it's not with answers, but with a power that puts him and his questions in the right place. Habakkuk ends his little book with worship. Habakkuk's praise arises not because he has the answer to his questions, and not even because God has resolved his circumstances. In fact, in this final psalm, Habakkuk says that even if nothing gets resolved, even if everything falls completely apart, even if everything burns to ashes, yet he will rejoice. There is this amazing nevertheless. This worship stanza ultimately comes through encounter. And Tish Harrison Warren says that ultimately, we are not looking for an answer. We want to be made new. And how are we made new? We are made new through encounter. And we encounter God in worship, just like Habakkuk did. Worship reforms us. It changes us through encounter with God. Worship is born out of our real life circumstances. And these circumstances somehow become the doorway to encounter God as we bring our reality, all of our questions, our doubts, our pain, the injustices of the world, the sin and darkness that we encounter in ourselves and in the world, and we tell the truth to God about it in prayer, just as Habakkuk did. As we bring our reality into prayer, we encounter God and discover that there is someone far greater than the solutions to our problems or the answers to our questions. There is God. And so we worship. Dallas Willard says that worship is the intentional turning of our mind to God and ascribing to God all the good and great things that we know about God. 
It is any means through which we assign God ultimate meaning and authority, which is exactly what happens when Habakkuk meets God. Worship gives God center stage and as such puts everything else in its place. So your practice for this week is to spend time in worship, to turn your mind intentionally to settle on the good and great things that God has done. And some of you might do this by listening to worship music, but I just encourage you as you listen to that worship music, participate in it, sing along. Don't just be carried away by the good feelings it might give you. Use the music to turn your mind intentionally to settle on the good and great things God has done. Use the music to worship. You could also worship in the way that you engage with nature. The goodness and greatness of God is revealed in the amazing world of creation. And I think it's especially evident in this season of spring. In fact, I'm sure that my neighbors wonder what I'm up to these days as I stop and examine the blossoms on the cherry and apple trees in their yards. The detail, the smell, the color, what kind of care and creativity went into an apple blossom? And then think about the intricacies of the human body and mountains and oceans and black holes and a universe that is ever expanding. And all of a sudden you realize that the creator of those things is worthy of praise, is worthy of worship. If I wasn't so self-aware, looking at an apple blossom might make me raise my hands in the middle of Briarwood. Nature can help turn our minds intentionally to the good and great things that God has done. Another way that you might worship this week is by dwelling on a name of God that brings to mind God's character. This is a great way to bring the small r reality of your life into the large R reality of God's life. For instance, I have always loved this name for God, Elroy, the God who sees. It's a name of God that has brought me comfort, but also challenge when I've needed it. This name of God has helped me to give God's center stage when it's tempting to want to defend myself or make excuses for my behavior or believe the lie that my life and experiences don't matter. God sees. Now there are hundreds of names for God in the Bible, and we've just put up a link to a list of the names of God that you can have a look at. Pay attention to a name that sticks out to you. Maybe it's a name that applies to a situation in your life, a situation where you, like Habakkuk, are shaking a fist or demanding an answer and then use that name to help you intentionally turn your mind to God and give to him the recognition that God deserves for the good and great things that God has done. Worship puts our questions and real life situations in place. It helps us assign ultimate authority to God. And so worship also puts empire in its place because as we worship it loosens the grip empire has on our hearts and lives but also as we worship we participate in revealing the truth that at the heart of the universe 
above and over all things is the one truly worthy of worship. And so worship is an act of defiance against all the forces that want to take the place of God. Worship is the place where hope is found as we encounter the God who, as Jared says, works for no one but himself. As we take these moments to worship, to give God center stage, I believe that we will also be transformed and be compelled to work against the empire, to stand for justice, to speak against the forces that dehumanize others and use up creation. Worship will lead us to act as our lives become more and more aligned with the God we worship, the God who makes all things new. Overthrowing empire, overthrowing Babylon, overthrowing systems of racism and injustice, all of the things that are wrong with our world is a big job and it can feel overwhelming. We don't know if we can do it. And in fact, we can't, but God can. The God that Habakkuk met, the God who shatters mountains and forges pathways through stone, that is the God who can make all things new and that is the God who is worthy of our worship. And it all starts when we stop and intentionally turn our minds to God. It all happens when we just take some time to look at an apple blossom.